0: I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. Hello, hello. I hope you are as pumped as I am about today's episode. Our most popular podcast guest is back, culinary medicine expert, Chef Dr. Mike. And today we're talking all about sugar. What to have, what to avoid, what's the food matrix, plus we answer all of your listener questions about sugar addiction, low-calorie sweeteners, and what the deal is with natural sugars. Now, a couple announcements before we dive in today. First up, I am going on a trip to Montana in August, and I invite you to come with me. So Chef Dr. Mike is actually hosting a culinary medicine symposium on August 12th to 13th at the University of Montana in Missoula. There's going to be expert panels and more importantly, food demonstrations. And this year's event is inspired by Julia Child, who said, You don't have to cook fancy or complicated masterpieces, just good food from fresh ingredients. Now ain't that the truth. I'm definitely going to be there and I would love to see some of you. So if you feel like spending a weekend in beautiful Montana and hanging out with me and Chef Dr. Mike, check the link in the show notes for more details and make sure to DM me so we can make plans together. Okay, second very, very exciting announcement. This is something that I've been working towards since starting the podcast last November. And if you listen to Farm to Future on the reg, you'll know that I put the show together as a labor of love and have gotten to meet so many incredible farm to foodies like you and also some companies that are doing amazing work. Today marks the day where we have our first official sponsor, Q Confetti. Please meet Peterson's Natural Farms. If you're on Instagram, you've probably seen me post stories about their sugar-free bacon and my kielbasa recipe with cauliflower and carrots, or their amazing breakfast sausage, which is legit some of the best I've ever had. And trust me, they're not just some random meat company. I am so, so proud and honored to be partnering with them because they're a business that truly cares for animals under the Global Animal Partnership, and they're a great case study for how to do humane animal husbandry at scale. If you do eat meat, I highly recommend you check them out. It's a great way to support an ethical, sustainable business and support me so I can keep bringing you awesome content. Their VP, Neil Dudley, is such a cool dude. He'll actually be on the show in a couple of weeks, and he's generously offered 10% off for you guys with the code FARMTOFUTURE. Here's a short message from Neil himself. Howdy, y'all.
1: We're really glad you're listening to the podcast. We are big fans. My name's Neil Dudley, and I'm the vice president of Peterson's Farms. We make top-quality bacon, sausage, and ham from humanely raised animals that are never fed any animal byproducts. So what does that mean for you? It means delicious, healthy proteins made with care that you can feel really good about eating and feeding your family. To learn more, visit PetersonsFarms.com. Now that's with a D, P-E-D-E-R-S-O-N-S-F-A-R-M-S.com. And since we're fans of the podcast, we want to give you a discount code. Use Farm to Future and get 10% off. Thank you. See you there.
0: We've got one of y'all's favorite guests back on the show, Chef Dr. Mike, one of our favorite people, and one of our least favorite topics, which is sugar. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey,
1: Jane. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me back. I love you. I love your audience. Uh, I'm so excited. I'm, I'm glad they voted me back. Yes, I to stay on the island.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's always room for you on the island. <laughs> <laughs> So it's funny, I've been thinking about this topic lately because I discovered someone called the glucose goddess. Uh, Her name is Jess something, but her, her Instagram name is glucose goddess. And she just wrote a book called The Glucose Revolution. And her big thing is around glucose spikes. And she kind of did a bunch of testing on herself and monitoring her glucose levels throughout the day and realized that a lot of the issues she was experiencing came from those glucose spikes. So I've been thinking about that a lot lately, and then also saw your post about the news around cereal boxes and the sugar on ingredients labels. So just kind of wanted to kick off with that. What's, what's the deal with that news, and how does that affect us?
1: Oh, so, so this, was, this was just kind of a uh, fascinating, kind of funny tongue-in-cheek that Kellogg's was suing the British government because there's so much sugar in their cereals that the laws in the UK say that if things contain you know too much sugar, they can't be displayed in certain areas of the supermarket. Hmm. And because they're they're considered not healthy alternatives. And so Kellogg's answer to this was to say, hey, you forgot the milk. And if you add the milk in, then there's not so much sugar because of course hmm. the sugar is diluted in the liquid of the milk. And uh, therefore, you know, our breakfast cereal is actually very healthy when you put it in milk. That seemed to be about as disingenuous as as one can be, but does get back to, you know, what we see on our shelves here, which is where by focusing on a particular nutrient, let us say oats, because oats and oatmeal are associated with better health for, for a number of reasons. That when we ultra process those oats, which by the way, then they lose all their healthful attributes and we combine them with uh, sugar, then all of a sudden it's healthy. And we could say this honey oat breakfast cereal Mm. has a seal of approval from AB organizations and it's part of a healthy breakfast. And they put such a label on there um, that actually doesn't require any verification from the FDA. And then people are picking that off the shelf saying hey you know this is a healthy uh alternative and it tastes great to them because it's loaded with sugar and you know off we go down the ultra processed food rabbit hole
0: so it's more like sugar with a bit of oats than oats with a bit of sugar
1: well yeah and, it, and it's two things too jane and this is what really one of the things that we focus on very much initially when we use the culinary medicine approach to help people and patients and and so forth change their perspective to a healthier outlook and a healthier practice and a more enjoyable experience with food and repairing their food relationship is is that the this idea of ultra processing so the way nature packages oats is 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 actually you know very helpful and very tasty but when when they put it in those cereals what they're doing is they're destroying that food matrix so basically, we're breaking those oats down and destroying and degrading the way nature packaged it, and then we're repackaging it. And when we repackage it, we add additives and uh, flavor enhancers and all these other compounds uh, so that we can stretch how much the oats we use because we want to make a profitable product, right? So it's got to be profitable, which means it can't be very expensive if it's going to compete on a shelf to make. And then it's got to be shelf stable so we've got to add things that increase that shell life those are two components of what we define as ultra process uh, products which is actually a very a specific definition that comes from the nova classification which was developed by the university of sao paulo out of brazil over a decade ago and then finally we want to make it we call it in academic circles hyper palatable But in in real parlance, what we're talking about is making it an addictive food, right? That's what hyperpalatable is. It means you wanna eat it again and again, and you Mm -hmm. wanna eat my brand of cereal again and again. And that's where things like sugar, salt, and fat come into being added to these ultra-processed products.
0: Mm. If anyone hasn't listened to our first episode with Chef Dr. Mike, we go deep into that NOVA food classification. So be sure to check that out. So if we can go back to basics, I mean, sugary foods themselves aren't necessarily bad. I guess we should clarify what we mean by that because fruits have sugar, right? Fruits have fructose, um, in your words, the way nature packaged it. And, you know, that's a great source of carbohydrates and energy for us to, you know, go about our lives. So where does it get, I guess, sort of dangerous for us and where does sugar become addictive?
1: So that's a great, great point, Jane. So I'm going to take it even a step back and and say, let's look at sweeteners, because that's sort of the big category. And I think a lot of times when we talk about sugar, we're really talking about, you know, sweet things and how do we make it sweet that appeals to us. Uh, Again, it's probably an evolutionary based thing. And one of the things we have to realize is that sweet foods that were built to taste, they go to an air of a brain that responds to what we call the dopaminergic pathway it's our pleasure center in, in short sweets make us happy really they mm. do uh when you eat that that chocolate bar it's lighting up your brain like a Christmas tree and you're feeling you are feeling happy because that's what it, what it does but like any potential drug there's a crash at the end of that and so sweet things we we are built to enjoy because if Mike and Jane are out on the Serengeti, uh, our ancestors are out there. You know, caveman Mike and cave woman Jane, and we're on the Serengeti. And here comes the saber-tooth tiger, and your ancestor happens to grab that you know peach that's low-lying there on the branch, and you get a burst of sugar and energy. I'm dinner. I'm not here today because mm. my ancestor got was a saber-tooth snack. So the <laughs> ability to get those those instant bursts of energy confer uh a certain potential back in the day survival advantage Mm -hmm. so that was a good thing to be able to sense out um and that's the way nature builds us too which is just a funny aside is that things that you know tend to enhance our survival or survival of the species are generally what we experience as pleasurable because it's a behavior that nature wants us to repeat again and again it's in our best interest so it's always good to keep that in the back of our brain When we look at sweeteners, we have the the ones that nature gives us, right? That's honey. It's the fruit that you said. And and let's face it, you know, back in in the cave person days, there wasn't a lot of these available. I mean, you could probably get some honey, probably get stung a lot. So there was a risk involved there. You would get fruits, but they grew in seasons and there wasn't, you know, tons of sugar lying around. And that only came about as invented, um, we believe uh, in China, several thousand years ago. And for many thousands of years, uh, it was actually considered a medicine, given in small amounts, hard to produce. That changed a little bit actually with the Pirates of the Caribbean. And that was one of the reasons for Pirates of the Caribbean was sugar, because that was incredible wealth and it was Mm -hmm. part of the, the trade that existed back in the day. And, and although pirates loved gold. They also love cases of sugar and things made from sugar cane, like rum. Love rum, hmm. uh, and 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 so pirates are, are part of our history of sweets as well. And even up until the mid twentieth century, sugar was still pretty darn expensive, and so people ate it in really pretty limited amounts. Then came something that changed the game, and we went from natural fruits and honey to you know, sugar, which is a processed ingredient, but just molecules of glucose and sucrose and a little bit cost prohibitive to something called high fructose corn syrup. Mm. And that was uh, invented by the Japanese in the early seventies and it was pennies on the dollar to sugar. And we could, and it was hyper sweet. And so we could add it to things like soft drinks and they became much cheaper because uh, you didn't have to add as much uh, as you did in terms of sugar. And as I said, it was pennies compared to dollars for sugar. And it changed the game. And now you can add high fructose corn syrup to everything, including things like savory burger buns that people would get at the drive-thru. And they were actually added not that long ago for imperceptible levels of sweetness. Not that you would perceive it, but remember, we talked about those areas of the brain that would light us up. Mm-hmm. Boy, boy, you know, this McBurger is much more delicious because... I remember my mom would say, we don't need to go out to eat. I'll make you a hamburger that's just as delicious. And, I, and, I eat it and I'd be like, this isn't really near as good as like the drive-thru because the drive-thru one was loaded with, with sugar. And it's stimulating those areas of our brain. And it turns out that when we destroy things and add it back in terms of high fructose corn syrup, that is an ultra processed product. And when we add that to things, even to like something like bread, That is one of the criteria of transforming that bread from what we would call Nova group three, which you mentioned we talked about, which is not ultra processed, into Nova group four or an ultra processed product because high fructose corn syrup is what we call a MUP or a marker of ultra processing. And it also turns out that when we eat high fructose corn syrup, we don't metabolize it the same way we do when we get uh, glucose and fructose in, in fruits that's bound up in fiber, in something we call that food matrix that makes us digest it differently. It becomes immediately available to our bodies. The glucose gets absorbed immediately. To your point, those glucose spikes. And then fructose is, is metabolized quite differently, free fructose, even though it is also a, what we call simple sugar. And it actually does two very important things that makes us want to start building fat in our body, which is not good. And then it tends to shut down our satiation response. So normally when you get some sugars and some sweets, after a little bit, you don't want it anymore. You've had enough. It's sweet. And because it starts signaling us that, that we're full. You've eaten something. You've gotten enough. Well, when we use high fructose corn syrup, that response is, is shut down. It's suppressed. So people eat things with high fructose corn syrup and never get the off switch turn, flipped on their brain. And so you, you want to eat more chips and more cakes and more cookies and more snacks and more baked goods. And of course, if I'm selling something, that's what I want.
0: Yeah. So going back a little bit, can you explain what exactly is high fructose corn syrup? So I assume it's something derived from corn, but how, how do they actually make that product?
1: So it's quite an industrial process. It's like not something, even with a Mr. Wizard chemistry set, you will not be able to do this in your home kitchen. Basically, what they do is you get glucose and fructose molecules, so a sugar molecule that we talked about that is naturally derived from sugarcane or sugar beets, etc., when we purify that out, that's a molecule of glucose, which is a simple sugar, and a molecule of fructose, which is a simple sugar. High fructose corn syrup has more fructose attached to those glucose molecules in, in chains. And so hence the name high fructose mm. You know, corn syrup. Uh, it is, as you mentioned, derived. It's a corn, industrial corn product. And one of the major uses of corn, uh, besides being used as an agricultural feed, actually goes to the production of high fructose uh, corn syrup. And the way it's constructed, there are actually different combinations that are like so much fructose versus so much glucose. And some are used in baked goods, for example, as a sweetener. Some are then used in sweetened beverages. It it sort of depends on the concentration and the sweetness levels and things that you're looking for. Uh, But suffice to say, all of them contain more fructose than glucose, hence they're a little sweeter than natural sugar, because the way those molecules are put together and Mm. they're put together in a way that does not occur in nature.
0: Hmm. Interesting. So, um, a couple thoughts this triggered is one of my hypotheses around sugar intake is it's going to vary for everyone, right? What you need in terms of sugar levels. Two factors that come to mind are one, how active your lifestyle is. So you mentioned the Serengeti example earlier. We might not be running away from saber toothed <laughs> tigers, but you know, <laughs> but you know, my friend Mark is a marathon runner, or you know, I do a lot of cardio, and I'm going to want to prep for that with with sugar that can be burned easily. Right. Um, and then the other factor you mentioned is seasonality, where in the summer, I do tend to crave more fresh things, more fresh fruits and vegetables, and, you know, less heavy kind of meaty potatoy things. I guess, how do you think about like matching up your sugar intake to your lifestyle? And are these the sorts of factors you would think about?
1: yeah I, I think that's a great point and so i don't worry about the sugar occurring in, in natural foods at all it, it's wrapped up in that in nature's food matrix again talking about those glucose spikes so that's something when we look at individual isolated foods we refer to as the gi or glycemic index mm. um which is is how rapidly does that sp- glucose spice occur after you eat that uh, food and what's interesting if we look at fruit juices uh, which I don't actually do a lot of I don't necessarily recommend that people do a lot of what we find is because we've taken that fruit juice out of the natural matrix that it comes in those uh, GIs tend to be quite high um, Mm. and things that contain high fructose corn syrups have those high glucose spikes those high GIs that you're talking about but when we eat the fruit just as they naturally occur, what we find is that the GIs tend to be low. And just as a caveat, the glycemic index is also affected by other foods that you eat in concert with that. So Mm. if, for example, you tend to eat a fat, so uh, white bread has a very high GI. But if you put butter on that toast, that GI goes down because fats decrease the rate of absorption. Mm. So it's a little more complicated than just looking at a GI, but it gives you kind of a good ballpark. When we look at these natural foods, and we study them in things like people, when people have diabetes, what we find is that those natural fruits, diabetics can eat, and it helps them, they Mm -hmm. do better, all the markers we measure are better, even though, you know, we're telling them to eat fruit, which has sugar in it. And so I think that's maybe the most powerful example, because Being as old as Methuselah, I I can remember when, you know, we were told, oh, you know, diabetics shouldn't have fruit because it had sugar in it, this and that, and we're going to cause them to spike their blood sugars, and they're going to get all out of whack and all come in with diabetic comas, and, you know, it's all this, you know, alarmist sort of stuff. When we actually looked at it, it's like, no, um, nature knows how to do this, and actually it turns out that they do better when they eat, you know, lots of fruit. So the, the data is pretty clear on that. So, I never ever worry about it. And in fact, when I cook, you know, where some recipes often call for adding sugar to things, um, I find you can leave it out, right? Mm. So, if I'm doing something with onions, a savory dish, and I want a little sweetness, say I'm making a spaghetti sauce or something like that, if I just caramelize those onions a little bit, Mm. that highlights and brings out the natural sugars and the natural sweetness. And then you don't, you're not adding extra sugar to your spaghetti sauce. But if you look at the jar of spaghetti sauce on the shelf, you'll see sugar is like the second ingredient.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: there's a real difference in making something at home that's probably more delicious and you can save it for like, I'm eating last year's spaghetti sauce that we canned with garden fresh tomatoes a year later yeah. versus buying something on the shelf that has those added sugars, high fructose corn syrup a lot of times, other kinds of sugars, and, and it's really not good for you. So, My rule, never worry about the sugars in natural food. I'm not going to live my life and never have, you know, a birthday cake with my daughter. (laughs) Um, You know, I think that's silly. I've actually come across people like, oh, I'd love to have a, Mother's Day cake that my daughter baked for me, but it's got sugar in it, and I can't eat that. So mm-hmm. you know, I told her, no, and I was like, you are uh, must be some kind of unhappy person <laughs> if you can't share this, you know, because life is about experiences, right? And yeah. and it's about happiness. Um, as a total aside, there's absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about because I love to throw things out. We'll come back to visit. When we look and we correct for everything, right? Your cholesterol level, your blood pressure, smoking, exercise, whatever. And we simply look and do a measure of like, are you a happy person or are you a miserable person? Mm. The people who are happiness, the highest, uh, I can't remember if it's quintile or quartile versus the lowest, they live almost eight years longer. Mm. So happiness is very powerful in terms of a medicine that mm. you're in control of that like makes you happier. So that's like a good way to live life and also helps you live longer and helps you live better. So I think that... Certainly if I'm enjoying those things, I, I have no problem using sugar. And that actually is a, is a, what we call Nova group three, but I don't, and I try to really avoid getting into those ultra processed products. And And the data just keeps increasing, Jane, that a little sugar is fine. You know, it makes you happy. You have as much fruit as you want, but it's, it's when we eat and consume a lot of these ultra-processed, these high fructose corn syrups, the maltodextrin, the brown rice uh, syrup, which is just another word for sugar, Uh, dextrose, uh, maltodextrin. These are all words you'll see on a label that just means sugar and Mm. and ultra-processed forms of sugar. That's what we have to stay away from. Got
0: it. Um, when you mentioned the living longer and, and happiness connection, I think of my grandmother who's almost 100 years old and uh, she's been through a lot in a lifetime. But one thing I notice is she generally has a positive outlook on life and she always has the most positive things to say about other people. So I think that has a lot to do with how long she's lived.
1: I, I-, I agree 100%. And we don't often. I, I've heard of this talked about a lot in cardiology circles. But people are always worried about, hey doc, can I have red meat? I you know I don't want to have a heart attack. Uh, can I eat red meat? Well, the number one risk factor for this was done a couple of years ago for a heart attack, more than blood pressure, cholesterol, diet, etc. They correlated <laughs> mean tweets to areas of high heart attack density. And you could overlay the maps, the places where there were the most mean tweets were the places that had the highest rate per capita of heart attacks.
0: Oh my God. So
1: it was, It was. So I think your grandma is like art to something. So the next time you want to, you know, get all mad and do that you're sacrificing your own coronaries in the process. <laughs>
0: good to know yeah my grandma's definitely not writing on mean in tweets <laughs> or on twitter <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: that's one way to avoid me tweets right. Just don't even on twitter. <laughs> <laughs> there you go <laughs> your grandma's very wise <laughs> yes
0: <laughs> she's also not tech savvy so <laughs> there's that um but i love this term you use of food matrix, right? It makes me think of like, y- you talk about at the molecular level, but these sugar, I guess, particles are wrapped up in like the the fleshy kind of texture of the fruit. And that's what makes it, you know, helps us digest it and and all of this good stuff and that resonates because the glucose goddess has a similar tip where she calls it clothing your carbs in other things so making sure to eat fiber and fat and protein along with your sugar and she even has this formula where you know if you're eating let's say like broccoli quinoa sausage and grapes together to eat the broccoli first and then the sausage, and then the other things, and then grapes last. So to basically coat your digestive truck with the fiber and the protein before the sugar lands in it. I haven't tried that yet. I'm not sure like where that lands scientifically, but any thoughts there?
1: Yeah, so if you're eating them in order, like on your plate, it doesn't make any difference, right? Because there's something called the gastric emptying time where everything sits in your stomach for a while before it gets moved on into the small intestine. It varies in different people, but everything's gonna collect and then be mashed together in the stomach during digestion. So Mm. I'm I'm not really sure uh, about the applicability of that. If you're eating it sort of as a meal on the same plate, if you're talking about timing it out during the day, then that potentially does have a difference. I'm not really sure what she means with that, but I would say in terms of the food matrix, it's even simpler it's just the way that nature prepares the food. And I'll give you a great example. So let's look at buffalo milk mozzarella, made one way, mm-hmm. and buffalo milk ricotta, both fresh cheeses, both made from buffalo milk. Um, you could do the same for cow's milk, but the data set was done with, in Italy, so it was done with real buffalo mozzarella. <laughs> uh, and, and so if you look at the ingredient list, it's exactly the same. If you look at the breakdown of sat fat, et cetera, et cetera, it's exactly the same. Hmm. So the only difference is in how we craft that food. And so obviously when, you, when you're making mozzarella, you're pulling it and wrapping it and pulling it and wrapping it. And with ricotta, you're not necessarily doing that. Once it separates, you pull it out. Then when we look at how that affects when we eat it, sort of the secretion of hormones, our uh, physiologic response to it, our biologic response to it, our GI, our glycemic index, we find out that they're totally different. Mm. So how could something that is the same ingredients, if you were looking look at an ingredient label, absolutely identical, have two different physiological biochemical responses? Mm. Well, that's the secret of the food matrix. Uh, so if you were to look under electron micrograph, which I wish I could pull up because I actually have that. I'm such a geek. <gasps> um, you can see that, that the strains of cheese and mozzarella are, are all linear. Uh, mm-hmm. There are like little soldiers lining up. And that's, of course, when you bite that pizza and it goes, and then hangs on your chin, you know, that little bit. <laughs> yeah. cheese, right? That's, that's because of the way it's made. And ricotta obviously doesn't do that. We also find there's a different GI for pasta depending on how thick it is. So, again, the ingredients are the same, but the thickness of the pasta will affect not only the GI, but also, again, our response. This is all the food matrix, so how it's packaged. So it's kind of like each food is its own you know, little thing being you know, dropped off from amazon.com. And you know how sometimes you get paper stuffed in there. And <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's little, little air things in there. And <laughs> sometimes it's broken because there's nothing at all. And they should have put something in there, mm-hmm. right? So each food comes in its own little Amazon package. And, you know, ultimately how we receive it and the shape it's in when we get it is is dependent on that packaging. And that's the food ma- matrix. And mm. what I'd say, you know, with ultra processing, there's no package at all, and it's like my UPS man who just throws it in the snowbank at the curb in the winter because he won't drive up, and everything's broken and frozen. So that's ultra. <laughs>
0: that is a great image.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not so great when you go down there and you go, "Are you kidding me?" You know, it's been right. sitting in the snowbag for 12 hours, and you pick it up, and you just hear the pieces, and you're like, "Oh, oh,
0: oh man!" <laughs> Sounds like you're talking from experience.
1: Yeah, this is, this is, this is the real world we're talking about here, Jane.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I've got a couple listener questions here. Some of you you've already touched on. So one is around naturally just derived sugar. We talked about fruits they're awesome. What about other sugar alternatives like honey, agave nectar, maple syrup? So in the wild, I mean, if you were to go tap a maple tree, you'd be sitting there for hours if not days and months waiting for it, right? <laughs> and so the the kind of quote unquote natural method is like you wouldn't get very much sugar at a time, but you know, if we're using those things to replace refined sugar in say baking, it, is that better? Is that the same
1: I love that. Um, And that's a great, great question. Uh, Thank you, listener. So when we talked about sweeteners, um, I would say there are what I call sweeteners of redemption. So these are naturally occurring things like honey, uh, like maple syrup, and what we're getting with that. So honey You know, it's antimicrobial, antifungal. It's rich in all these things that are really beneficial for us. So we're getting more than just the sugar molecule there. Uh, Maple syrup, great natural source of like manganese, uh, for Mm. example, along with broccoli and things like that. So we're getting more than just the the sugar out of that. So, yeah, if I'm going to create something, if I'm going to use an added sweetener um, and there's a place for that, definitely... You know, one of the, the simple things that I did many, many years ago, for example, my wife doesn't like her coffee black like I do. So she was always adding one of these horrible ultra-processed sweeteners and said, just try a little honey in there, you know, just a little bit of honey in the morning with that coffee. And now that's all she'll have. So she's getting a little bit of benefit along with that sweetness. And, it, and it's not like, you know, Pooh bear you know, Winnie the Pooh sitting there having honey, you know, uh, uh, Out of a pot. jar after jar of honey. Yeah. So I, I think those are great. And, and to me, those are a little bit more preferred than what you mentioned, which is just sort of the natural cane sugar, the refined sugars. But even within that, there are forms of sugar that are more raw. Mm-hmm. So they'll have more, sometimes they're made from sugar cane. They'll have more of that molasses flavor. And they will then, since they're like brown sugars and those types, more raw they will have additional elements and nutrients and and compounds in them so they're a little bit better than just the pure white sugar which as you mentioned is refined and just those molecules of of glucose and fructose as we mentioned and you can kind of go you know really up the spectrum from honey and maple syrup you know, all the way to brown sugar to white sugar, sugar to high fructose corn syrup, mm. and you're going in an increasing level of processing till you cross that border with things like high fructose corn syrup and, and the levels of ultra processing.
0: Mm. And did those sugars, that gradient you just mentioned, did those map onto the, the Nova groups?
1: They sure do. So we would take, you know, honey is a raw ingredient. Mm. Maple syrup would be considered a raw, you know, ingredient. Uh, when we get to the brown sugar so those would be like nova class one class two Mm -hmm. the brown sugar would be you know kind of like a a nova group three and again that would be and even some of those group two which are just kind of food products so again Mm -hmm. these are things you and i would use in our kitchen we've used for thousands as we mentioned the history of sugar thousands of years ultra processed options like high fructose corn syrup those are clearly group four you know, and obviously relative newcomers. And a simple tip is like, if you wouldn't use it in your kitchen,
0: Mm -hmm. um, even though I
1: know you can buy jars of high fructose corn syrup now, um, like if you wouldn't really use it in in your kitchen, you probably, you know, shouldn't be using it in your kitchen. (laughs)
0: Yeah. It's kind of scary to know that you can buy jars of High fructose corn syrup. Yeah. So,
1: so, you know, those, those corn syrups that they use for baking, Mm. uh, I never bake anything with where I'm adding just that, that corn syrup. There are usually alternative recipes. If it's a dessert, if it's special occasion where I can make it with sugar, that's sort of the, as far as I'll go up that border to make a, a sweet treat, you know, with real sugar versus crossing that level to the uh, ultra-processed product. And I'll share this with, with your listeners because this was a fascinating study. Uh, it was called the Aventus Health Study. And and they did one, this was Aventus Health Study too, they did Aventus Health Study one years ago. And it was one of the early and few studies that suggested to us that maybe just, you know, vegetarian food was superior to an animal-based diet in terms of health and longevity. But since they did it a while ago, the variable they didn't analyze was ultra-processing. So they went back and they said, it's fair, let's look at this, and they did a health study too. Not a very creative group when it comes to naming, but it was a very (laughs) good study. And, and it was over 75,000 people, and they had a big vegetarian contingent because a lot of Seventh-day Adventists, vegetarian diet is is what they really prescribe in their practice. Long story short, what they found is that, unlike the first one, when they corrected for levels of ultra-processing, there was no difference in health outcomes. It didn't matter if you preferred vegetarian. It didn't matter if you preferred animal-based. Hmm. The only thing that mattered was the level of ultra-processing. So there's clearly an issue that occurs and in culinary medicine, we trace that using the data set that we do back to this destruction of the food matrix that that seems to set the stage to impact how we respond to the food, but not only us, that's also then gonna impact all the, the gut bacteria. So you know, taking probiotics and spending 75 bucks a month for probiotics every day, doesn't do you any good if you're eating all this ultra processed food, which by the way, According to a supermarket survey, over ninety percent of meals and things labeled vegetarian at supermarket are ultra processed.
0: Ooh, that's very telling. I mean Yeah, yeah. So if you're
1: gonna do that, make sure you, you do lots of your own fresh fruits and veggies.
0: Yeah, that's my hunch too, after our last conversation and just doing more research is realizing the the real battle, so to speak, is not between plants versus animals. It's real food versus processed food, right? I want to get back uh, to that uh, real food. I'm going
1: to retire now and you can teach my class because, <laughs> yeah, that, that, you, you pretty much just covered the whole introduction of culinary <laughs> medicine. All there of we you who go. just listened to Jade, you just got your certificate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> done. One and done. <laughs> One and done. <laughs> Love it.
1: Um, You're giving all my secrets away for free
0: (laughs) Everybody go check out Chef Dr. Mike's website
1: (laughs) I'm going to have to go fund me now Because you're giving it all away
0: (laughs) I love it Um, A follow-on question from Amy is what is kind of the latest research, and I kind of have a hunch, on sugar substitutes like Splenda or Sweet and Low? And she mentioned back in college learning about there was a connection to finding cancer in mice. um, And also these sweeteners can tend to be much sweeter than regular sugar, so it can heighten our threshold for sweetness. But what's kind of the latest thinking and research around these uh, artificial sweeteners?
1: Yeah. So just um, about a, a month maybe six weeks ago or so another one of the the many artificial sweeteners out there was linked over the long term to increased risk of cancer Mm. uh in this case specifically breast cancer so it actually goes back many many decades to an interesting sort of observational phenomenon so back in the day when we thought you know the the risk was the calories and eating a lot of calories and that's how people got fat um etc like diet sodas with artificial sweeteners were a great thing because you could get your sweet fix, but you were getting zero calories. So there wouldn't be any impact of it. Well, when we follow these people in the cardiovascular literature, an interesting thing occurred. We watched people who drank like coffee, tea, water, mostly, et cetera. And then up here, increased worse were people drinking sugar sweetened be- beverages. And you would expect people, based on what we thought, that they should be down there with the water drinking folks. Well, they weren't, they were right up there next to the people drinking sugar sweet beverages. And we said like, what's up with that? And I remember, cause I brought it to journal club as a cardiology fellow in the dark ages. And one of my mentors looked at me and said, Mike, ha- have you been in a fast food restaurant? Yes, I have. Well, have you ever heard this? I'll have two quarter pounders with cheese, extra large fries and Diet Coke. And I was like, yes, I have heard that. And they said, okay. And I was like, yeah, well, okay, maybe, maybe that is part of it. But when we actually looked at it in models, what we found, and this was published in Nature probably five years ago, what we found is that those artificial sweeteners being, again, novel compounds that we have not evolved to respond to, nor has our gut bacteria respond to, what it does is throw the gut bacteria and then that's, your uh, whole gut and gut microbiome into a pro-inflammatory state. So it predisposed in a murine model, uh, these animals to develop obesity, which is an inflammatory process we know now, type two diabetes, which is an inflammatory process we know now, and then all the things that are associated with those types of inflammatory processes. It really took you from a a position of neutral to pro-inflammatory. So uh, I, I am not a supporter in terms of, oh, well, instead of having real sugar or high fructose corn syrup, you know use an artificial sweetener. I think for all the other reasons that Amy mentioned in that it still lights up our brain with a sweetness and it actually um, screws up our physiologic response because your body is then releasing the hormones and the response that says, hey, I just ate sugar. And all these things go there and they're like, there's no sugar there's no sugar molecules here. And so it, it, it becomes an abnormal response to the stimulus and kind of gets our, our brain screwy and our response is kind of screwed up. So yeah, I think Amy's spot on for a number of reasons. I just say, you know, stay away from them.
0: Stay away. Yeah. Sounds like it's almost like you're running on empty. It's like your brain thinks you've got sugar, but the tank's empty.
1: Yeah, it's not there. And yet you're sending all these things out to to deal with lots of sugar. And it's sort of like a ghost army that, you know, there's nobody there. And it is still, though, programming that emotional connection to the sweetness. So you're still becoming sort of addicted to that reward stimulation. When we truly enjoy something and, you know, I've talked about stepping back and switching the, the neurologic gears into an attitude of gratitude and and Mm -hmm. and being mindful and appreciating that meal we are in fact switching then to the oxytocin mechanism and, and that is not subject to habituation which the dopaminergic reward center is so Dopaminergic is a reward center. So that's why when you can eat one candy bar and feel really good. And then after a week, you need two candy bars to get that same sort of pleasure from it. Mm -hmm. So it's, you need more reward, right? It's, it's, oh yeah, yeah. I I got one Maserati, but yeah, I'm not really happy. I need, you know, two Maseratis or whatever that would be. And that's, that's our reward response. And we become habituated to that, meaning that, you know, it takes more, For us to get that same high from Mm. it. Um, it's basically how drugs work, right? You know, all of a sudden, you know, I need more of whatever, you know, drug to get that same sort of response. That's habituation. That's a dopaminergic reward response. It's how opiates work. And, and we've done really good as a society dealing with those. (laughs) Um, so
0: (laughs) that was sarcasm, everyone
1: is, is why my mom still loves me. Mm. Um, that's the bonding between a mother and child. I was a horrible child. Um, as an adult, <laughs> I would dread ever having to deal with a kid that was as as horrible as I was. Um, <laughs> my mom is a saint, you know, rest her soul. And she loved me, you know, no matter what kind of screw up I was. And I was a plenty of screw up. And, you know, how much heartache in retrospect I caused this poor woman. She loved me because she was my mom and I was mm-hmm. her kid. And that is oxytocin. You know, it can't be habituated. And it just seems to me like that's where your grandma dwells i mean Mm. she's mastered you know being in this oxytocin realm and she's the living proof of the benefits for being there as opposed to you know going from dopaminergic to dopaminergic reward
0: yeah yeah totally speaking of the dopaminergic uh one question from maria is sugar as addictive as cocaine or is that a myth
1: it's hard to say if, if one is more addictive than another because that also depends on your individual response to it. What we can say without uh, controversy is that they operate in the same manner. So as we were just talking about this dopaminergic response, this is the way that opiates work. It is the way we process ultra-processed foods, which are constructed with layers of salt, sugar, and fat. And they're constructed in in that way because salt is probably the origin, according to many uh, scientists, of all addictive behavior in human beings, because we are programmed because we need it for life to seek out salt as omnivores.
0: Hmm. Well, thank you so much, Chef Dr. Mike. I feel like we have more questions now to dig into. Um, I'm sure folks would love to have you on again. Maybe we could make this a regular thing. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body, and I'll talk to you next time.